Vegirim Jatripatamaham Vandim Aram Sri Chaitanya Mano Bhishtam Stapitam Yehutale Swayam Rupakadama Yungarati Swapadam Tikam Mancha Kalpaturubyas Chakrapas in Tobia Evacha Patitanam Pavane Vaishnava Pyonamo Namaha so um, I'm happy again to be here among you all. And um, we're here to continue our discussion of what I have uh, characterized as a, the reach of a powerful force. Uh, just trying to understand uh, just how great bhakti is. And um, so last week, this week, I'm, I'm calling this week a little more digging. It took, I, I couldn't come up with a great title, um, but um, this seems to reflect what happened after I read Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's um, Tika, his commentary on um, verse 19 of the fifth chapter of the Bhagavatam's first canto. Navajano Jatu Katanshana Virajen my dear Vyas, even though um, a devotee of Lord Krishna sometimes falls down somehow or other, he certainly does not undergo material existence like others, the fruit of workers, etc. Because a person who has once relished the taste of the lotus feet of the Lord can do nothing but remember that ecstasy again and again. And last week I shared with you Srila Prabhupada's, um, I think I've always thought it's quite a wonderful and um, a generous um, uh, purport <clears throat> uh, explaining the position of, of, a, of a bhakta, of a devotee, um, even one who um, strays or falls um, from uh, the path of bhakti. Uh, because as Srila Prabhupada puts it um, in his um, purport um, of, poor uh, of bad association, or as Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur puts it in his tika, um, poor determination. And the two things go hand in hand. Um, so uh, it's not a great mystery. So then I also shared um, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's commentary um, and, and how when I read um, his commentary of this verse, um, it, it just opened the verse, opened up a whole new realm, whole new realm for, uh, for me and my understanding of Krishna Bhakti. Um, and th then I started chasing things down. So I'm going to review that as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Still very early in the morning here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <clears throat> so I want to go over Panu Swami's. Um, translation uh, of this verse, as well as his translation of the last part 
of Srila uh, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's commentary. So uh, Banu Swami um, translates it. Oh, the person who serves Mukunda will never under any condition return to the material world, unlike practitioners of other processes. Remembering the embrace of the Lord's lotus feet, eager for that taste he has experienced, he will not desire to give up those feet again. And then in the um, last paragraph of his commentary, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur writes, this verse also uses the phrase does not desire to give up instead of not does not give up. This implies that he desires that he be devoid of pride in his practice. The accomplishment is in the hands of the Lord. The cause of not desiring to give up is then mentioned. Rasagraha means one who is eager for tasting or one who has a taste which is something like a ghost which cannot be given up, haunted by rasa. And when I read that phrase, um, I don't know, my mind kind of imploded, haunted by rasa. And um, so, you know, it, it's, the implication is that this is this is something it's, it's like a ghost which you can't a ghost you can't shake and um that's actually the literal translation of haunted uh, i mean of rasagraha graha means haunted as, as as by a ghost and then um this next sentence i've always taken as a sort of maybe a sangshaya a, a bit of a doubt um uh, rather than the kind of straightforward reading that we see here. The meaning is then that worship after stages of nishtaruchi and asati becomes actual rasa at the stage of rati. So I, the way I read this is because, because of the way he responds to it is as him kind of posing a doubt. And this is something Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur does. He, he's really um, good about um, really examining something very carefully by posing a doubt or even um, a purvapakshan, even um, a, con a, a counter argument um, so that he can um, unfold what he wants to say more fully. So the way I read this sentence is, we may suppose then that the meaning is that worship after the stages of Nista, Ruchi and Asati becomes actual rasa at the stage of rati, stage of bhava. Um, and the reason I read it like that is because then he says, however, from the first day of worshiping the Lord, there is certainly a portion of tasting rasa in a very covered form. Thus it is said, bhakti pareshano bhavo shatrika ekakala Devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Lord and detachment from other things. These three um, occur simultaneously for one who has taken shelter of the Lord, has taken shelter of Krishna in the same way that pleasure, <coughs> excuse me, fullness of the stomach and relief from hunger 
are experienced simultaneously with each bite for a person engaged in eating. So in order to support his assertion that even at the very, um, even before the uh, more advanced stages of Nishta, Ruchi and Asakti, there still is some rasa because rasagraha means, oh, you've actually tasted some rasa, but what is that rasa? It's the rasa of having served the Lord's lotus feet. Um, uh, Banu Swami translates it as the uh, embrace of the Lord's lotus feet. Srila Prabhupada um, says the taste of the lotus feet. So um, it seems to me that what they're, what they're talking about is the taste of having served the Lord's lotus feet. So he supports that with this verse from um, the second chapter of the 11th canto. So this is, I, I was just commenting last night in an online nectar devotion class that I need to make a chart for myself of which of the Navayogendras um, speaks which verses in, in those first few chapters of the uh, 11th canto to King Nimi. And I haven't done that yet. And so I'm not able to remember which of those um, nine sages um, actually spoke this first. So then I thought, okay, that's intriguing. Um, Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur certainly seems to have a zeal for the power of bhakti. He's really, seems really invested in, um, in singing uh, the praises of bhakti and uh, bhakti Devi and her power. So then the next thing I thought was, of course, I've got to go look and see what Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur wrote in his commentary on this verse. So this is what we find. Same verse, devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Lord and detachment from other things. These three occur simultaneously for one who has taken shelter of Krishna in the same way that pleasure, fullness of the stomach and relief from hunger are experienced simultaneously with each bite for a person engaged in eating. Um, so this is a very striking analogy and, and very apt um, because not only do the three things happen simultaneously, but they happen progressively as we eat, as we'll see in Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's um, commentary on this verse. So this is his entire tika uh, on this verse. An example is given to show that even at the stage of sadhana, which gives great happiness, one achieves the result. I mean, that's big right there. That, that is just, it seems to me that's about as clear as you can get. Even at the stage of sadhana, which gives great happiness, one achieves the result. So then he says, where there is bhakti in, in the form of hearing and chanting about Krishna, the supreme deity, there should be a sweet experience. So we all have some, some experience of, uh, of bhakti, some, some sweet experience, um, either in a good kirtan, hearing a really good discourse on the Bhagavatam or reading some verses that, um, 
that may, might even uh, trigger an epiphany where we see something that we hadn't seen before. I, I mean, I remember, I, I remember when I first started associating with the devotees um, fairly systematically. So this was end of 1969, beginning of 1970. I started reading Bhagavad Gita as it is. And I started, of course, with Srila Prabhupada's introduction, which is pretty lengthy. And one thing he says in the introduction that really caught my attention, because I had tried to read several editions of Bhagavad Gita before. I was very um, invested in understanding Bhagavad Gita since I was a, a, a teenager. And I just was never able to, to get into it, never able to figure it out. And um, so, Probably while I was in the Navy and maybe just after I got out of the Navy, that was in 1969. Um, I had read, because <coughs> at the time I was really into Gandhi. I, I, I really got into like nonviolent resistance. Um, you know, I mean, I was part of managing the, uh, keeping track of what was going on with the war in Vietnam. I was an intelligence analyst and what I saw really disturbed me. So um, I, I kind of, in my heart, went in, in the opposite direction. So, and Gandhi, Gandhi was really into the Bhagavad Gita, at least his own understanding, which he shares in a book. But, um, um, and that didn't, that didn't really uh, work for me either. Um, and, so I, I, you know, I was kind of um, disappointed that I, that I, you know, that this text I really wanted to understand just didn't even seem accessible to me. And uh, when I when I met the devotees and I got a copy of Bhagavad Gita as it is, um, as I even before I bought one, um, I was thumbing through the pages and this devotee who showed it to me. Uh, who's now an, a very dear friend of mine, Turiyadas, um, handed me the Gita, asked me if I'd ever read that edition. And I said, oh, no, I hadn't seen it. So um, I started thumbing through and I picked a couple pages at random here and there. And I remember looking up at him. And I just read just random stuff. And it just resonated with me. It clicked. Uh, and I remember looking at Turiyadas and saying, I don't understand how, but this makes more sense to me than anything I've ever read. And he just smiled. Uh, and uh, this is the power of, of Bhakti. So um, that was a bit of an epiphany. And then when I moved into the temple, uh, I guess at the beginning of 1970, um, I was reading the Srimad Bhagavatam and um, as I was reading the second verse of the Bhagavatam, so this was pretty early in my, you know, quite soon after I'd moved into the temple, I read the second verse of the Bhagavatam, which talks about, um, among other things, who's a fit audience for the Bhagavatam. It's kind of a thesis statement. It's the Vastu um, Nirdesha Shloka of Srimad Bhagavatam. So it, it, um, it tells us what the subject matter is, what the point is that the Bhagavatam is going to make. But um, in the course of doing that, it also tells us who is the best audience. Dharma paramo nirmatsaranam satam. Right in the first line, in the first pada of that verse, 
that tells us that those who can actually appreciate this this particular text are those who have always done already done what Krishna says to do at the end of the Bhagavad Gita. Completely reject all conventional um, forms of Dharma. So the Bhagavatam's language is even a little starker. It calls them Kaitava Dharma. And as I've mentioned many times before, I hope not too many times, when Krishnadas Kaviraj discusses the second verse of the Bhagavatam in the 22nd chapter of uh, Madhilila, Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita, um, he says, what do we mean by Kaitava Dharma? Dharma Praujita. Praujita means the same thing as Parityaja, completely reject, but it's in the past from what I understand. So for those um, um, who've already given up all kinds of Kaitava Dharma, and Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami says, what do we mean by Kaitava Dharma? Well, that means Dharma Artakama Moksha Vancha. That means aspiring for the fruits of becoming a vir- having become a virtuous person, making spiritual progress, um, get, uh, enjoying life as you can when you make some, I mean, material progress, I'm sorry, uh, making material progress, um, Arta. Um, pl- the kind of pleasure that you can get when you become material, materially successful, and then the desire for liberation when you realize that it was all a scam. So um, this is, you know, so when I read that verse, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then as I read through Srila Prabhupada's purport, I came across a sentence where he makes a very strong distinction between the devotees, those who are near Matsaranam. They're uh, free, completely free from envy because they don't have anything to gain in the material world. So Srila Prabhupada says that everybody's competing with each other for the resources of material nature, humans against humans, animals against animals. He says, but the transcendental devotees of the Lord, they don't, they're not competing with anyone for these things because they've come to, to create a competition-less society with God at the center. And when I read that sentence, that was it. I knew at that moment that I had found the revolution that we had all been looking for. And, um, and I also knew I just wasn't going anywhere. Um, so this, um, this verse, uh, when I read this verse, I also see um, not only are, are the devotion, to, oh, I'm, I was talking about um, that sense of devotion. So a good kirtan, a good Bhagavatam verse, or a good talk on, on the Bhagavad Gita or something like that, those things that give us this kind of um, happiness, um, that's that experience of bhakti. And then he says, when there is bhakti in the form of hearing and chanting about Krishna, the Supreme Deity, there should be a sweet experience. At that time, there should also be an experience of detachment from material happiness. These three should arise at the same time for the person who worships Krishna. However, as we'll see with the analogy of, of eating a meal, <clears throat> they also they appear simultaneously and also progressively. So let's take a look at that analogy. Um, Similarly, for when a person eats, 
there is happiness, nourishment, and disappearance of hunger with each mouthful. As one takes a mouthful of rice, this happens. Just as the person who eats a little gets a little satisfaction, a little nourishment, fullness of stomach, and a little relief from hunger, so a person who worships the Lord a little with hearing and chanting gets a little experience of the Lord, a little detachment from material life. Um, and just as a person who eats a lot gets full satisfaction, full nourishment, and full relief from hunger, so a person who worships the Lord fully experiences the Lord fully and becomes completely detached from material life. But though it is impossible to keep eating, although that this may not be quite so evident when you're 22 as it is when you're in your mid-70s, um, though it is impossible to keep eating, by more worship, the, uh, worship of the Lord, one becomes more capable of worshiping. That is the difference. So we, we know that uh, um, any analogy in, in the world um, is imperfect. And so here he points out the, the flaw in this analogy. Uh, we can't keep eating unlimitedly, but by practicing our worship of the Lord, it, it enables us, spurs us to, um, to um, and enables us to worship more um, and more. So this seems to me it's a progressive thing. And it begins, the pleasure that we get from eating a meal begins with that first mouthful of rice. There's some pleasure there. The nourishment begins there as well with that first morsel of rice. And the, the um, slaking of hunger the, hunger, the relief from hunger also begins right then with that first mouthful of rice. And they become progressively, um, well, we become progressively pleased, satisfied, and relieved of hunger the more we eat until we know it's time to stop. So it's the same, it seems to me, with, um, with uh, practicing our sadhana. We get some experience of the Lord um, by in, from, through our hearing and chanting. Um, something happens that draws us um, to, uh, to take more carefully um, uh, to, the, to the association of devotees, to take more assiduously, more devoted, devotedly, um, the practice of sadhana bhakti. So that's some experience of the Lord. Um, just, you know, whatever, whatever, that, um, whatever that practice is. And we feel a little detachment at the beginning and we become progressively detached from everything other than bhakti um, the more we practice and, and the more uh, carefully uh, we practice. There's a, I, I don't know if I've had an occasion to share this anecdote that I like to share about practice. Um, there's a, a, a story I've read in a few places about uh, Pablo Casals. Pablo Casals was a uh, cellist. He was probably the most 
prominent. He was considered uh, by uh, the consensus was that he was pretty much the best cellist of the 20th century. Uh, I guess he was kind of succeeded by Yo-Yo Ma, who's probably now the most um, famous cellist in the world. Maestro Casals, I think he was from Spain and um, lived in Puerto Rico, I think, in his old age. So he was being interviewed in his while well, he was in, in his 90s by a young uh, reporter. And he mentioned along the way that he practiced several hours a day, every day. And, um, and, and when he said practice, that doesn't mean sitting down, just playing things for pleasure. He said that includes running scales and doing exercises and things like that. And it was something like four, five, six hours a day that he would practice, uh, as I remember it. And um, the reporter asked him, why? Because at this time, he was in his 90s, his performing career was way behind him. Um, and he still, this is what he did every day. So she asked him, well, Maestro, why is it that you practice so much every day? And he just shrugged and he said, I think I'm making progress. So um, anyway, I always took this as a, uh, a really uh, nice lesson. I used to share it with my um, university and college writing students. I would tell them that writing is a skill. And like any skill, we improve with practice. Now, different people bring maybe different levels of innate talent. Um, uh, perhaps from a previous lifetime or something um, to that particular skill. But um, they sharpen it by constant practice. And so I would you know, give some example, like from, these, from, from pop, popular music, well, at least popular music of my day. Um, and it probably wasn't so much in the rear view mirror when I was teaching. Um, you know, like Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Mark Knopfler, Stevie Ray Vaughan, whoever you're, you know, who you think is the best guitarist, B.B. King, these people, um, they brought a lot of musical talent with them and um, perhaps, uh, you know, an innate um, understanding of, of the guitar. Um, but I'm, I'll bet you that they also sat down and noodled around with their guitar every chance they got. Or like, oh gosh, giving away my age here, um, I think the example I probably used for athletics was Michael Jordan, who obviously brought some innate talent to basketball. But <clears throat> whenever he had a chance, when he was a kid uh, and a young man, he would he would go play pickup basketball, you know, uh, you know, like on playground courts or something like that. I mean, he was just always playing, always working on his skills. And then I would ask the students who here took music lessons when they were young. Hands would go up and I'd ask them which instruments they played. And, um, and then I would ask them, then how, and, and how often did you practice? And the uh, response was always unanimous, every day, every day, half hour or an hour or more. And um, so it's the same thing um, with our bhakti. If we practice, we make this kind of progress that we see here in this verse. So I thought, okay, that is really interesting. Um, I wonder if there's more. And then I came across something 
in the um, 14th chapter of the 11th canto. So this is in the Uddhava Gita. The chapter begins with Uddhava asking his um, uh, friend, Krishna, who, uh, what is the best practice for human beings? So just like if we go back and look at uh, the verse from the fifth chapter of the first canto, it's quite appropriate that this is a verse glorifying bhakti over everything else. So we looked at it last week, I think, together with the 17th chapter. And so that it, the two verses together draw a very stark contrast between bhakti and every other practice, including other spiritual practices. So I thought, hmm, okay. So I went looking around um, and uh, I found this, uh, I found uh, three verses in the um, 20, in the 14th chapter uh, of the uh, 11th canto that actually, that in, which, in, the, in his commentary, comments on which Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur directly addresses this. So the first one is text 18. Madhyamanopi madbhakto vishaya radhichen ajitendriya phaya pragalbhaya bhaktya vishaya nabibhuyate. My dear Uddhava, if my devotee has not fully conquered his senses, he may be harassed by material desires, but because of his unflinching devotion to me, he will not be defeated by sense gratification. So this is an interesting verse. <clears throat> and um, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur has this to say about it. He said, putting aside the topic of the devotee who has developed bhava, the devotee at the beginning of bhakti is also successful. So here he echoes um, what he wrote in that um, tika on the second chapter, that 42nd verse of the second chapter. Um, because of his unflinching devotion for me, he will not be defeated by sense gratification. So even if the devotee isn't completely pure, even if the devotee is not terribly advanced, his or her um, success in their practice of bhakti is assured. This is a very strong statement. Um, he will not be defeated by sense gratification. So there may be some difficulties, but eventually in the long run, it's not going to push that devotee down. Um, by bhakti, which is generally strong, what to speak of bhakti, which is very strong, the devotee cannot be overcome by material, material enjoyment. The words also suggest the following, just as a jnani, who commits a sinful act will be criticized, his position as a jnani will be denied. And then there's a verse from the 19th chapter of the 11th canto. One who has not controlled the six forms of illusion, lust, anger, greed, excitement, false pride, and intoxication, whose intelligence, the leader of the senses, is extremely attached excuse me, to material things, who is bereft of knowledge and detachment, who adopts the sannyas order to, of life to make a living, who denies the worshipable, worshipable demigods, his own self and the Supreme Lord within himself, thus ruining all religious principles, 
and who is still infected um, by material contamination is deviated and lost both in this life and the next. Um, as we say in Hawaiian, Awe. Um, oh my goodness, this is such a strong statement. And here is what um, Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur says in his commentary. But the devotee who commits sin is not criticized. And his position as a devotee is not denied. This is true of the jnani, must be true of the yogi. Um, but it's not true of the devotee. And then um, to support this, he cites um, Bhagavad Gita chapter nine, text 30, which, with which uh, most of us are probably pretty familiar. Apichetsudurachado, ojate mamananyapa, sadhureva, samantavya samyagyavasitohisa. Even if the most sinful person worships me with no desire other than to please me, I consider that person to be my devotee as he has fixed himself completely in me. So this is Banu Swami's translation um, of this verse. Um, Srila Prabhupada's is, excuse me, oh, a little less, <clears throat> Um, explicit, but he says what he says is still quite strong. That he is he is he must be considered saintly because he has fixed himself completely in me. So this ananya bhakti that's discussed in this verse, ananya bhakti, um, this means that there's only one object of worship, and that's Krishna. And even you don't have you have to do karma. Uh, karma yoga perfectly to get the results. You have to do um, ashtanga yoga perfectly to get the results. You have to do jnana yoga perfectly to get the results. Bhakti yoga, the results are assured even, um, even if you blow it. Um, there's another verse in the 11th cantor where you say, it says, you know, there's no danger for a devotee, even if they may run uh, uh, wildly with their eyes closed. Still, there's no danger that they'll be um, actually deviated from the path. So Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says, though the devotee is distressed by sense objects, he's not overcome. Because both verbs are in the present tense, it implies that even while being harassed by sense objects, he is not really harassed since bhakti is present. A person who is attacked by the weapons of an enemy cannot be defeated because of the presence of his bravery. Or on the day that a powerful medicine is taken to prevent fever, <clears throat> excuse me, though the fever still causes suffering, it is not a real cause of suffering since the fever is in a state of being destroyed and will be completely destroyed the next day. And then there's verse 19. Krishna says, my dear Uddhava, just as a blazing fire turns firewood into ashes, similarly, devotion to me completely burns to ashes, sins committed by my devotees. Oh, excuse me, okay. And Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says, 
Bhakti destroys the sins committed by the devotee who cannot control his senses. So, you know, if we think that, you know, somehow or other we're overcoming our sins, that's not the case. If we look at Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, the very beginning of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, we see that it's Bhakti <coughs> that gives, uh, gives us relief from material distress by uh, destroying the reactions um, to, uh, to any past uh, uh, activities, good or bad. Um, it's bhakti um, that makes everything auspicious for us. It's bhakti that makes liberation seem insignificant, etc. So um, it's bhakti that, de that destroys the sins uh, of those devotees who cannot control their senses. I mean, the devotees try to, generally, we try to control our senses, but we often find it difficult. We all often find ourselves um, drawn by sense objects to which we may be habituated. We may even find ourselves drawn to new um, experiences. All the, oh gosh, excuse me. All the same, um, uh, we can't be really knocked off the path. So then he says, uh, Vishwanath says, an example is given. Addressing Uddhava, he implies that Uddhava should be joyful. Uddhava means joyful on hearing this. And then <clears throat> there's verse 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, which says, Yata Yatatma Parimrjate Sao Matpunya Gata Shravanadi Shravanadi Bharana Tata Tata Pashati Pastushman Chakshur Yatai Vanjana Samprayuktam. When a diseased eye is treated with a medicinal ointment, it gradually recovers its power to see. Similarly, as a conscious living entity cleanses himself of material contamination by hearing and chanting the pious narrations of my glories. He regains his ability to see me, the absolute truth in my subtle spiritual form. So Krishna's, well, the form, the spiritual form of every entity is, is very shukshma, subtle, very hmm, uh, difficult to uh, discern. Um, it's their adhokshaja actually beyond uh, the reach of the mind and the senses. So then Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says, and here we go, starting with the first service. So this takes us back to um, uh, 1519 uh, from the first day of worshiping. Starting with the first service in proportion to the purification of the Atma by pure bhakti, and in proportion to the hearing, chanting, and remembering, one attains various degrees of realization of my sweetness. In proportion to hearing and chanting my glories, one sees the real nature, the vastu, of my form and pastimes with an experience of sweetness, shukshmam. Vastu shukshmam is a dvanva compound expressed in the singular number, or it can mean subtle truth with the modifier placed after the noun, or who's an editing error, placed after the noun as poetic license. One eye is better than being blind. Better than that 
is having both eyes, better than that is having the eyes anointed with a special ointment so that one sees higher objects, finer objects. Whoops. Uh, okay. I'm have that because I'm going to take a look at some of those again. So um, when I read this, I found myself very heartened. I thought, okay, it seems like I'm really on to something. If at least, if nothing else, it's clear that um, that Vishwanath uh, Chakravarti Thakur, if nothing else, is a very um, a dedicated uh, 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 believer in the power of bhakti over everything else. Um, and so um, I thought, wow, this is this is really great. So you know, we see how these all these different commentaries kind of work together um, to make uh, to make this case. Um, if we go back, oops. Um, you know, if we go back to his commentary uh, on one five nineteen, um, he says. Um, you know, the meaning is that worship after, he says, um, uh, however, from the very first day of worshiping the Lord, there's certainly a portion of tasting rasa in a very covered form. So if we were to read rasa graha, as he suggests in what I take as uh, the expression of a doubt, um, <clears throat> then um, uh, we can dismiss that doubt that we're not just talking about ruchi asati or bhava, um, that we're actually clearly talking about sadhana bhakti from its very beginning of state, uh, very be uh, uh, earliest stages uh, of shraddha, sadhu sangha, um, and even um, you know, anishtata bhajana kriya, unsteady um, devotional practice. And then, um, oh, and then, when Vishnu uh, Chakravarti Thakur is talking about, I think it's the 18th verse, yeah, 18th verse in the 14th chapter of the 11th canto, um, he cites this uh, famous verse, Apichet Sudurachara Bhajate Mamanandapak Sadhureva Samantabhya Samyag Vyavasito Hisaha. Even if somebody who's completely devoted to me without you know, having any faith in the other devatas or any other process, so-called spiritual processes, and certainly without faith um, in material progress, even if they do the most horrible things, even if they completely blow it, he says, that we, we must still consider them saintly. And I remember reading years ago, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's Tika on this verse, and here he kind of poses a little dialogue with doubts. Um, and he says, uh, uh, so wait, why do you, you know, why must he be considered saintly? And Krishna, he has Krishna responding, because I see him as saintly. That's what we see here in this, in this um, uh, translation of verse 30. And this, so often this verse is um, used 
as a kind of a club against devotees whose practice may be imperfect or may, may even seem to deviate um, in some way. Um, and, um, and other devotees will use it to, um, as a, a club to point out faults in them um, and, and then say, yeah, yeah, I know what you're gonna say, uh, Bhagavad Gita 9.30, but Prabhupada says this isn't an excuse. And the fact is, if we actually read the verse, especially if we read it in the context of the chapter, which it is, you know, uh, which it's almost at the very end of, the most confidential knowledge. I mean, Krishna starts out by saying, I am going to tell you the most confidential knowledge, and you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt because it's, you know, it's the, this is going to become a very exciting ride. So here he gets to the, in, so this is very confidential stuff here. And so he says, even if, if the most sinful person worships me with no other desire than to please me, uh, I consider him my devotee, even if he um, does something terrible. So um, this is not um, a verse that's given to excuse poor behavior on the part of the devotee especially if we look at it in the context of the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the most confidential knowledge, this is a glorification of bhakti, pure and simple. That bhakti is more powerful than our, uh, as we see in the, in the 11th canto, than our attraction for sense gratification. Bhakti is more powerful than our most sinful desires. And eventually we become successful. So um, I took uh, great heart um, in um, reading um, these commentaries, these verses and, and commentaries uh, all together. Um, but then there arose in me a doubt, uh, which we will um, explore, that doubt and its resolution, um, which we'll explore uh, next week. And I'll stop here. Um, whoops, how do I? Oh, I guess I stopped sharing. Um, and I'll stop here to entertain um, any questions or any discussion. So I guess uh, Sakyarati can unmute and, and Shannon can unmute or uh, give everybody permission to unmute themselves, I guess. And we'll see what comes up. Oh, I guess. Um, Maharaj. Sakirati th says thank you. You're welcome. Yes, Prabhu. Um, I was wondering if um, Bhagavad Gita 239 could fit, fit in into the as a uh, supporting verse here. Oh, see, this is this is such a um, I become more grateful to Padmanabha Maharaj every day 
uh, <laughs> for, for asking me to do this because now I'm getting more, uh, more material. Um, someone suggested something last week and now we've got Bhagavad Gita 239, which we can take a quick look at. I've got the Bhagavad Gita as it is here. Let me grab my Guru Maharaj's. I'm talking about Nehabikramanashosti. I'm not yeah. sure. Okay. Oh, 239. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I think that I think that's what also came up last week as well. Now, that's 40. Nehabikramanashosti. Um vidyate. Uh, that in the practice there that, that nothing's wasted. And the progress our progress in bhakti is never diminished. Um, even the slightest practice of this discipline protects us. From the greatest um, danger. Um, gosh, I hope I can find the note I made um, last week as well. But I think this was the same verse that might have come up. And um, in my notes, um, in my annotations in the, in the book, um, you know, we, uh, I, you know, he, well, at the end of his commentary, uh, Swami Triparari writes, uh, this is discussed further in the 31st verse of the of chapter nine, because just as we see in uh, the discussion in one of Vishwanath's commentaries about if you take medicine for a fever, you still may have the fever the day you take the medicine, but the fever is already being destroyed and the next day the fever will be gone. So um, in the 31st verse, Krishna tells Arjuna, this is because uh, you know that that you know we we still have to consider this person saintly. I consider this person my devotee in Banuswami's translation, and and that's because bhakti is so powerful that it um, that it will you know that it actually has the power to consume the reactions to even the most sinful activities. So yeah, this is this is gold. Thank you. Oh, I think it was something from the sixth chapter that we were looking at last week. I'm going to have to yes, and yes. that opened. Yeah, and that opened up to me actually several verses in the sixth chapter. So I'm I'm gathering even more evidence uh, by consulting uh, with with uh, with my friends. So I, I thank you all very much for that. Is there anything else? I know I can always count on Sham Shamananda. Uh, Amitpurna says thank you, um, and uh, you're very welcome. I want to thank everybody for the opportunity. Padmanabha Maharaj especially, but all of you who um, actually come, so I'm not just talking uh, to Mr. Zoom, um, which may be more comfortable for me, I, you know, but I, I find that actually, um, as Guru Maharaj has often pointed out, half the work is done by the audience. You know, if there's anything valuable here, um, you get at least half the credit. Um, because of the inspiration that we that the speakers get from um, the devotees. Also, I have to, Mahapriya also thanked me in the chat, so um, I want to acknowledge that as well. And Bhakti Lata. I think Annapurna. Hi. Mm hmm.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, I think I see what she's saying. And um, Srila Prabhupada makes it really clear. Um, you know, there's a difference between making mistakes and learning from them. And, um, well, deliberately, um, deliberately deviating and, um, you know, and, and, um, and persisting in um, maybe, I guess, putting your, yourself forth as a, as, as a great sadhu um, on, the, uh, on the plea, uh, uh, you know, on the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, authority of this verse. Srila um, Prabhupada in his, in his purport, let me find that. Uh, well, let me see what Guru Maharaj has to say first here. Guru Maharaj is 26. So, you know, he says, even, um, he says, Krishna here says that the sinner, Sudhuracha, and it's just not Duracha, it's Sudhuracha, really, really bad stuff. You have even really bad, bad character because of their surrender to serving Krishna, there it can be, uh, be considered saintly. Um, And he says, understanding, understandably, these verses, verses have been explained in numerous ways to qualify what Krishna is saying so that one cannot cite them to support bad character in the name of bhakti. Um, however, in evoking these explanations, one must be careful not to undermine the power of bhakti, which is the spirit of the text. And Srila Prabhupada writes, Srila Prabhupada is quite explicit. Well, anyway, uh, yeah. The gist, though, is that if the, if that devotee continues to practice um, sincerely, and, and as we know, uh, Srila Sridhar Maharaj says, sincer sincerity is invincible. If they practice sincerely, and try to you know actually work to correct the faults, acknowledge the faults, and work to correct the faults. Then their their progress isn't going to be impeded. Um, so when someone does um, uh, seem to go off the rails, um, we can consider them. We can still consider them a devotee, but we don't have to follow them. Um, when things went awry here in Hawaii back in 1973, um, Srila Prabhupada said a couple of different things. Once he said it was the fault of the, you know, that, that all the, the responsibility was on the leaders who had left, but he also said that um, the devotees should have been, should have been discerning enough um, to not um, follow them because after all, some, many of the devotees have been practicing for a few years. Um, so it's not, Prabhupada says, it's not, it doesn't excuse um, persistent bad behavior by a devotee. 
So, you know, if if we can um, accept correction, um, and um, you know, and keep trying even harder, just like when you um, make a mistake practicing the cello, you, you know, you make a mistake, you don't make a big deal out of it. I remember when I was taking piano lessons, and even before that accordion. When I was, but I was taking piano lessons. Um, a couple of my teachers would use a metronome in, in the lessons, and um, and they said, "Well, when you make a mistake, don't go back to the beginning of the bar because the metronome does. Just keep playing." And they said, "That's what you need to do when you're in a performance. You just keep playing. You you realize, oh, I made a mistake. Same thing with with meditation. You know, you're told not to think, just concentrate on your breath." <clears throat> But if a thought does come into your mind, you don't make a big deal out of it. You don't beat your up, yourself up over it. You just think, oh, okay, there's a thought. And then you go back to your breath. Um, so the devotee, when they realize they've made a mistake, then they should go back to their practice, perhaps even more assiduously. And they realize, oh, maybe I'm not as far along as I thought I was, or this was a mistake that maybe caused a disruption. And maybe I need to make an adjustment and how I deal with others. So, um, so Srila Prabhupada says this verse is, is not there to excuse that you know, kind of persistent um, bad behavior. Does that help, Anapurna? Oh, yes, she, she said it. it was a question. She forgot this question mark. Is there anything else? Okay, then um, I guess we can adjourn here. Um, and with gratitude, um, I will uh, see you all back here uh, again, the same time, same place next week. Thank you all so much. Hare Krishna. Bhakti Abhayashra Maharaj Ki Jai. Hare Krishna.